our colon system literally ruptured on the day that my daughter was born. Like we were at the hospital and Kelly was delivering. Um, I said, talk about your water breaking. Welcome to Making Ends Meet. I'm Tim, and this is a podcast documenting the journey of two mates attempting to open Sydney's very first meadery. While documenting our story, we've been interviewing the Jay-Zs and the Beyonces of the modern mead movement to get some much-needed wisdom on the topic of mead. In this episode, we speak with mead's quirkiest man, Ricky from Gronfell. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Here we go. <laughs> you, do you want me to start it? How about start you it. start it? Yeah. Let's mix it up. Okay, you start it. Alrighty, guys, it's Josh here. We're actually going to do something different, and for the first time, I'm going to introduce Tim to the podcast. So, how are you, Tim? Oh, mate, thank you. It feels so good to be here. Episode 7, baby. God's holy number. Hallelujah. Let's go. Lovely. Uh, Tim was having a bit of trouble <laughs> starting this one off, to be honest, but um, oh, there, there, just, might, there yeah. might be a blooper reel. <laughs> Maybe. Who knows? Who knows? He, he went from depressed... <laughs> yeah, he, he went from depressed to like too excited to, to oh. kind of just like weirdly in the middle. <laughs> I'm such an extremist. I've got serious problems. I need to talk to a psychologist. Anyways, that's another topic. Um, Josh, how have you been, mate? Yeah, I've I've been good. Um, you know, you might you might hear some rain just dripping off the tin roof at home here. So if you hear the pitter patter, um, hopefully it. Hopefully it relaxes you, but not enough that you fall asleep listening to us today. Um, <laughs> you're living, you're living your best life up there in the mountains. Now you've moved. Yeah, I am. Um, no one can find me, so it's wonderful. Oh, you, you're in your perfect, happy little place there. That's great. That's great. It's lovely. How are you? Oh, dude, I'm good. A, a lot's happened. Um, it's been, it's been a little bit longer than I was hoping between episodes, Josh. But like with the whole COVID uh, lockdown, uh, you know, uplifting. The, the wedding business is just is just exploding um, mm. just because everyone wants to get married now. And, um, you know, gym's opening, lots of, you know, friends want to hang out and it's just, it's all very busy and very exciting. But uh, I kind of miss just hanging out in my bedroom for like three months and just working on one thing. And man, that was wholesome. That was, that was a good time in my life. But anyways, good power through. Yeah, it, it was a blessing. I mean, we... We were lucky in the sense that you were able to have that time. Um, I had some of that time, but not as much time as Tim. I still had to teach kids. That's but, right. That's right. You're um, still working hard. Yeah. But, you know, like we, we still, you know, I was still at home, so I didn't have the travel time. So, I had some more time to like, you know, think about different things. But then I got kind of bottled up with a move and things like that as well. But we, we were really lucky in terms of the kind of the, I guess, the groundwork or the, the scaffolding we've set up for the future. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And it's it's not all doom and gloom. Like, we've, we're still proceeding. Um, a lot's been happening, um, but it has slowed down a little bit just because we're waiting for that license. Um, Josh, you've been working some stuff. I've been working on some stuff. What have you been working on? I've just been working on kind of this um, little, little experiment project that we've been talking about where I'm trying to kind of like you know, control the little dials and knobs and, you know, set the phases to the sun kind of a deal um, with the actual fermentation process of our mead to see what will happen. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, we've we've both been kind of obsessing over mouthfeel. Now, can you, can you tell people why mouthfeel is important? Like, you may know this already, but if you're a complete noob to just any kind of drinking whatsoever, why is mouthfeel important, Josh? 
Yeah, well, I guess like part of the reason that alcoholic beverages often are quite popular is this thing called mouthfeel. And so many factors play into that. And it's it's quite complicated, but really it's just that, that like actual sensation you have in your mouth of the beverage. Like, you know, does the carbonation, you know, is it super carbonated and like kind of spiky, like a fizzy drink kind of almost, you know, hurting your mouth or, you know, is it really like smooth and soft like a Bailey's liqueur? And there's so many different kind of versions of this is there alcohol heat is there um is it dry is it you know thick and kind of syrupy is it like slick and buttery even at times mm, yeah so, yeah for sure for yeah. sure and and i guess we've been focusing on that because we both found mead to be just especially at the percentage that we're cooking it at just to be a little bit thin and we're trying to solve that we look i've i've had mixed reports mainly mixed because of me because i think it's not good enough but everyone i've shown my pilot batches too think the mouthfeel is quite good or they haven't noticed it at all and they think it might be a feature and not a flaw of mead because it is easy to drink. What do you think about that, Josh? Yeah, I, I think we we don't need to go the full, like, super uh, solid feeling in your mouth. I think we still want it to be dry and refreshing, but we don't want it to be kind of like really watery yeah. because paper thin yeah yeah like i mean in in terms of what we talk about like the the gravity or the, the kind of the weight or sensation of it you can actually get alcohol thinner than water so it can actually taste thinner and drier on your mouth than even a glass of water would so yeah. we're looking and at we, you know yeah avoiding that yeah, for sure, for sure. So you've been you've been busy doing that. Um, I've been focusing primarily on the branding right now. Um, like we're saying, the liquor licensing is it's happening in the background. There's lots of waiting involved, but uh, lots of back and forth with our epic designer, which I can't wait to uh, probably do a standalone episode of just that. But I don't know. This is just all happening as it's happening. But um, yeah, just like huge, ginormous emails like. I'm probably overthinking some of these things, but it's really important that when people see us for the first time, we look as good as we're going to taste. And I want to really portray who we are to people as effectively as as uh, possible. And to especially be a new beverage on the market, you, you don't want to come in looking sloppy. You want to be coming in world-class. I'm really, really... Um, being very, very detailed and everything in this thing. And I'm probably annoying uh, Clint, our designer, quite a lot. But I really hope at the end, we have a really strong brand that can um, can go the distance and get people to to know and love it and enjoy our drinks. So, yeah. yeah. Very passionate about that. As, as, as you can tell, Josh, very passionate about branding. <laughs> I... Yeah, but I, I think that's great because obviously, not that I don't care about branding, I do care about branding. Um, but we, we both have those areas of like... You know, I can I can look at branding and give feedback, and, but not as well as you can. And you know, you can think about you can like you can brew your own thing of mead, but obviously, in terms of like the nitty gritty, yes, kind of it's kind of my like, domain. I, so, I'm not I'm not interested in the uh, I guess how oxygen affects mead over time. I don't care about water additions and chemistry. I don't just Josh, you do that. <laughs> I don't care don't, at all. <laughs> You, you, you don't care about uh, sulfate to chloride ratios? No, just look, mate. If it tastes good, I'm happy. <laughs> That's fair. 
so yeah, lots of stuff's been happening and we have a monster of a interview right now and we should probably wrap this up really quickly because it's it's a big one. Mm. Look, today we're going to talk to Ricky from Groenfell. Just Ricky in general is so quirky and just, I think he's a bit of a polymath. Like he is mm. a master of many fields, PhD of many and just very well spoken and quite intimidating to talk to actually, but not at all. Like he's the friendliest dude ever, but he just knows his stuff. And it, and it was great. Like he was so willing to take our conversation in the directions that it needed to go. Um, so from yeah. like our standpoint, he just kind of, he kind of took us to all these interesting areas, all these conversations that I, I don't think I would have thought to ask him about. Which yeah, is awesome. that's right. That's right. And he's really passionate about the, the ethical arguments for Mead, the environmental arguments for Mead. And yeah, if you stick around to the end, he, he drops some massive truth bombs about the difference between Mead production and beer production. Not, not to pitch them against each other, but there are, some, there are some truths there about energy consumption, water consumption in the process of making these things, which is super fascinating. And I think one of our unfair advantages as uh, mead producers. Oh, absolutely. Um, not that we yeah. want to tell you not to drink beer. Please, by all no, means, no, no, drink no, no. beer. I'm drinking beer. I'm drinking beer. beer right now. Yeah. yeah. I'm drinking yeah. beer right now, but it's, totally. it's, it's going to be it's, that. It's, 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 it's just fascinating. And yeah, with the way the world's going, we're going to be looking for ways to, to still enjoy ourselves, have a drink, but maybe save some water, maybe save some energy and mead could be the answer. So anyways, let's shut up, Josh. Let's just let these guys listen to this amazing interview. Yeah, thanks for hanging out and uh, we hope you enjoy it. <laughs> there he is. There he is. Hello, boys. How are you? I'm doing fabulously. My friend, so you are pretty much like the mead world's very quirky, but- you're probably one of the quirkiest people in the mead business. Um, how do you feel about that? Well, that's a that's a, a high honor. There's a, I grew up in a one of those they call them big small towns. So like everyone somehow knew everyone, and there was a running joke that everyone when they met me for the first time would say, "Oh, you're that Ricky," but like with different tones, like, "Oh, you're that Ricky," oh, "You're that ah. Ricky." So it's I've been bearing this for at least twenty years now. Amazing. So, so when you rock up to parties and and someone asks you, so who are you and what do you do? What what do you tell them? Oh, that's easy. Uh, I drink for a living. Oh wow, amazing. And if if yeah, and if they want to follow up on it, I'll tell them about it. I mean, part of it that that's funny is like my wife owns the meadery. Like she could fire me any day, and she hasn't yet. Um, which after an incident last week is even more of a miracle than it's been for nine years. But um, no, I just. Um, I'm a social butterfly. I'd rather hear what other people are doing. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so, can you tell us your your mead story? How did you get into making mead, and and how did these these meaderies both gr- grow and fell? That's the correct pronunciation of that, correct? Is that right? Yeah, yes. I'll, I'll accept many. Yeah. Okay, cool. And and havoc, you've got two operating as one, mm-hmm. essentially, right? How how did those mm-hmm. guys come come about? So, uh, when people ask how I got started in mead, I say the normal way. Uh, so I was a nerd and one of the things, uh, one of my earliest interviews, I said, everyone who gets into beer brewing has had some amazing beer 
And she says to herself, like, I could brew that at home. And then she realizes, hey, I could brew that professionally too. And I could add this twist on it. It's a whole big story. Every mead maker professional read a good book, saw a movie. Um, You want to be part of that story. So we started with Grenfell, which is a bad play on words. Uh, it literally means Vermont, where we're based in Old Norse. And Grun is green and Fall is mountain. And I um, I speak a handful of languages and Old Norse is not one of them. But like I woke up at one in the morning. I was like, boom, that's our company that went back to sleep. Um, and of the many things I've sat up in bed at one in the morning and thought were a great idea, that is one of like the only ones that stuck. But uh, after a few years... You know, mead is a really small component of the industry, and Vermont is way up here in the corner of Vermont or of the U.S. with a very small population. I mean, there are city blocks in some of our major cities that have nearly as many people as the entire state of Vermont. So, uh, yeah, six hundred thousand people in the whole state. Wow, and, small. Yeah, and so we came up here. We started our business, um, and we had no competition, and so we made up a set of rules for Grunfeld. Uh, we have to be able to point to what region and what time period the mead that we're brewing is based on. doesn't have to be perfect. You know, we don't have a bunch of angry bees uh, floating on the top of our mead. We don't, I mean, dead now, but they were angry at some point. And obviously they didn't have the technology for carbonation 600 years ago, but we write up exactly where it's based on how we changed it as part of our homebrew support, like all of our recipes are free online. We'll even do a little thing about how it's been changed. Havoc side, that's our American craft. So we, that's the industry I came out of. And that's where, you know, that's where our hopped product is. That's where sort of our Belgian style, super funky. And that's where our sour series is held. A lot of historical meats would have been sour, but we're doing it on purpose. So we came up with it. So we actually had some competition and all of a sudden we could get shelf space. So now there were two brands. We've been super open about it from the beginning. Uh, There are a lot of larger breweries that try to obscure how many brands they have competing with each other. Uh, I once heard that of the 12 toothpastes available on the aisle, you're selecting from exactly one company in most grocery stores. For example, they just so it's, it's a known trick, but as a, as a B Corp into an ethical business, we, we've been very open about the fact that we were, it was both us, um, just with different ethos. All right. So this is the part where Tim, uh, he swaps over to me and I kind of talk and nerd out a bit. So first question is this, is um, what's your production capacity and how did you kind of come to that decision? I know. I, I, yeah, I think that the number that I know is we could theoretically, if we, between our, our mix of um, sort of like those stronger meats, the honey, almost honey wines, a little different, um, and our craft, I think we could push through if we were willing to take some risks. I think we could do 300 or 350,000 gallons a year. Wow. We're not, we're not there um, we've been supporting a couple local cider makers. Uh, part of that though, is that's us hitting all of our numbers, seven day a week brew schedule. And we're really supportive of people having weekends and vacations. And, mm. um, my, I have two assistant brewers who have really just put on the mantle of QC. They were invited to do it, but they, um, they're really pushing for, if we say, Hey, this is normally done in seven days, it sits in the tank for 14. If this is normally done in two weeks, it sits in the tank for three. Just so they have those extra days of data and just to see how it changes 
within our site rather than in cans sitting on the floor or out at distributors. So um, I think we could comfortably without stressing everyone out uh, do about 250,000 gallons a year, but that's not really in and of itself a goal of ours. Um, but we are working on a new initiative. It's really tough to get into this industry. And over the last couple of days, we've been talking about how we can, you know, sort of bootstrap for other people, some people in the cider industry and meat industry. Yeah, that, that just sounds great. Um, we're kind of looking at our options in terms of starting. And, you know, if we had over here someone we could go and talk to and know that they actually want to help you, not that people here don't want to help us, they definitely do, but... It's yep. a bit of a hard conversation about, hey, can we use your tanks or... Mm-hmm. Well, that was one of the things we had someone approach us two years ago um, about doing a special wine just for him. And at the time we were only distribution and um, he was the guy I was talking to earlier today. We're still friends and we were still chatting about it. But I like I was afraid I sort of broke his heart when one day like things had really progressed. And I had to be like, nope, I'm sorry. And it came from two things. And one of them was we were on the brew team. There were three of us and we were working real, real long hours. I mean, we were, we were, I had a little one, one little one at home and another one had just graduated college and was like getting his life started. And we were working these crazy hours. And suddenly the idea of adding hours for someone else, even that we're, if that was checks coming in the door, um, not something I was going to ask of my brew team. And we had such specialized equipment at the time the idea of just pulling on a new brewer, training them up on all the parts because all the brewers in our company do all the parts from production through cleaning, through maintenance, maintenance being the hardest part through canning line operations. It's a long ramp up. And we didn't know that we could justify that with someone else. And then the other part was, even though we had to make our own competition, we started to get this feeling that two, three years ago, pre-COVID, there were a certain number of slots allotted on a shelf for mead. And if we were helping someone else and he was suddenly really successful, even though if those were just checks in the mail to us every time it went out, I think there would at that point have been a uh, morale issue. Like we're brewing this for someone else. Why is it outselling our product? But now we're at a point where we're ready to not just, I mean, I consult for free. You want to open a meter or give me a call. I've got nothing but time. I love how you guys keep talking about how busy I am. I had one really crazy busy day the other day. It happened to be a day that Tim emailed me. So embarrassing. Never busy. All I do is shuffle around and look at my kids and pack boxes. But but I think it's time for us to really look at the community and what would have benefited me and Kelly early on if we could have had a place where we were in a good relationship with the owners and you knew, look, you know, I'll pay you whatever per can, just make sure it's in there. And for us, we also needed to get to a place, you know, we have all the things that a small mid-sized brewery has. We have steam fails in our canning line. We have, you know, sulfite sorbate issues every once in a while. And we wanted to make sure that those things we could really justify being like, hey, it's on us if something goes wrong. Yeah, so I, I'd love to loop around to this uh, specialized equipment conversation because mm-hmm. um, I, I come from a home brewing background, so I'm, I'm pretty familiar with like craft beer and craft breweries and what's involved in, like, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty textbook approach if you're going to start a brewery. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. 
To start a meadery, there's so many different ways about it. So talk me through specialized equipment. So meteries are at least, we have one advantage. Nobody knows what we are. Nobody's heard of us. Or if they have, they have the wrong impression because they've only read Harry Potter and then mead poisoned someone. Um, our mead does not do that. Um, I was in an event recently because I had this line for years where people were like, I've never heard of mead. And I'd go, yes, you have. You have forgotten. And they would say, no, I really haven't. I'd say, Beowulf? Everyone had to read Beowulf in high school. And they go, no, I didn't have to. I was like, fine. Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, at least The Hobbit, right? And I had one woman who was an English teacher who had never read any of those. But um, there is this piece of mead making where we came out of the homebrew movement. I thank God for homebrewing because mead would be long gone if not for that. Um, for more on that subject, bug me again. I'll go on another another podcast. You don't want to hear my entire uh, pieced together history of what happened to Mead. But I mean, I'm sure oh, we you totally do. do. I know. I, was, <laughs> I, yeah, I know you do. You don't want to hear it tonight. On another occasion, um, I've been working on this for like ten years now. So putting together a meadery is this weird space where, unlike a beer brewery, there are for the most part no MOQs. There's no minimum order because when you're sizing a brew house, you have, basically you have to have chilling capacity, right? Like there's no way that you can have a beer brewery without a chilling unit of some size, an enclosed fermenter and some sort of carbonated packaging system. Those are for the most part, your minimums. Mead, there is a woman about 10 miles from here, literally brewing out of her garage. She got it licensed as a meadery, and she has a couple variable fermenter tanks, and she's making it work. It's it's amazing. So that's the weird thing in mead is your barrier entry in the US, it's licensure. So can you get like you, she could not open a distillery like that because we have way more regulations over distilleries and breweries than we do over wineries, which is what mead and cider legally are in the U.S. So you can have it attached because, of course, historically, there were farmhouses that had wineries attached, but the idea of having a distillery attached to your home never got into law. So when you start a meadery, the question is, what is your target model? Do you want to be on draft around your hometown? Do you want to be on draft nationally? Do you want to be in grocery stores? Do you want to sell at your local farmer's market? Do you want to sell twice a year at the holidays at, do you guys have Ren Fairs there? Renaissance yeah, Fairs? we do. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Okay. As much as I love standing in public, talking to strangers and drinking at the same time, hobby of mine made career. I knew what I really wanted was to work within the distribution model. And that had to do with one of our goals of being sort of equitably available in the States, you can walk into a, a, I could walk into a gas station in the Midwest and get a four pack of beer better than any beer I was brewing in my, my beer brewing days. The idea that mead was reserved for special occasions and for special people just didn't sit well with me. Everyone talks about how expensive honey is. Yeah. Compare that to hops, man. Yes, honey is way more expensive to brew with than grain. Absolutely no question. Can you get to the volume you need to make those economies of scale? And so we 
built our own cooling system. We actually got HVAC certified so that we could do it. Terrible decision. When we moved into the new facility, uh, we just hired someone. And after the cooling system we built that got all sorts of publicity because it was super efficient, broke three times, uh, we learned our lesson. But what I would say for someone who wants to make it a going concern. So what we say in the United States is what you want to send your kids to college on. Um, if you want this to be what you, your kids you know, go off and buy their first house with, you can be an incredible meat maker and make a very, very, very expensive product and sell it to a select few individuals. Tough row to help admittedly, uh, or you can try to compete sort of head to head in the craft world, possibly an even tougher road to hoe. And in that situation, you are going to be doing a pretty big investment in your initial setup. So you're either going to be leasing or buying place. Buying is not a good idea when you're starting up. Uh, we did buy when we moved, but even that's pretty rare. So we went with conical fermenters because I was very comfortable with them as a being familiar with the craft beer world. If I had it to do over, I would do them again. Absolutely, no question. But there was definitely a time in there when we needed increased capacity and each one of those tanks is a pretty expensive addition. Um, and then it's the cost connected to coolant. They have to come in, cut into the black pipe, run your pipes down, unless you're doing it yourself, in which case it costs less and then more when you break it. Um, our coolant system literally ruptured on the day that my daughter was born. Like we were at the hospital and Kelly was delivering. Um, I said, talk about your water breaking. Um, so it was all vacuumed up and poured down the drain and not the baby, but the, the coolant. <laughs> and uh, she's great. She's four now. She's, she's very well. But so those, that's where you start to get the beer-like multiplier. So you want to do a 30-barrel setup as a beer brewer. You know, you buy two 30-barrel tanks, and if you are committed to it, you just buy a 15-barrel production house. Because a 15-barrel production house costs half as much as a 30-barrel production house. But a 30-barrel tank only costs like 10% more than a 15-barrel tank. So a lot of people oversize their tanks and just be like, I'll just brew twice a day every time you need to brew a batch of beer. But you're investing in the mash ton, the power to run that, because uh, you're definitely three-phase power for an electric brew house then if it's not that, you're steam jacketed, and then that's a $150,000 steam generator. Whereas with mead, this is where we get our biggest advantage. You want to double your production, you have two 30-barrel tanks, buy a 60-barrel tank. It's only 30% more than a 30-barrel tank. So originally, we used something that was sort of de rigueur in the industry at the time, which is a big mixing tank. Since then, we were able to design and implement, uh, it's actually really cool, it uh, runs only on renewable natural gas, uh, which is something that I think you guys have access to in the Sydney area now. Yeah, um, yeah it was really cool stuff. There's only one place in Vermont uh, that you can, well, one pipeline in Vermont that you can get it on. And we're one of the only states in the US that you can get it. So that's was really cool for us, but we have an on-demand hot water system that allowed us to take that huge mixing tank three-phase motor and scale it down to a single three-way valve and a pump. And so now we have, we're able to get honey and totes, something I learned from another mead maker here in the States uh, with a special blend of raw honeys. And then that goes through a three-way mixing valve with a high pressure on-demand hot water line up through a pump and then onto a recirculation in the tank. So if you want the actual specs and the specific things we bought, happy to send them over to you. 
but it's way better. And one of the reasons we implemented this is now everything happens on the ground. And if you've ever worked with a forklift and drum lifters, um, I had a really scary day. Something missed my head by like 10 inches, maybe. Um, really, like I still have nightmares about it. And it was say, uh, six years ago. Um, and I was like, everything on the ground. And it took us a couple of years to implement, implement some of these. We needed water that could be driven fast enough at a high enough flow rate to make this all work with raw honey. Um, which is everyone knows is a little more viscous than, than the processed stuff, um, that it can be done if you have a strong enough pump or if you have enough patience, that's another part of it, enough patience, you can do it with a food grade hose and a normal tap as long as you can heat it in some way. Yeah. That's just sounds amazing. Next thing is kind of, I guess, I guess recipe, um, Could you just talk us through uh, one of your favorite recipes and kind of how you thought about it, how you created it, how you designed it, you know? Absolutely. So we have three core products in each brand. We had a fourth core product in each of them. One of them went away and came back, which was nice. Uh, The problem was everyone loved it. It was like one of our top rated meads of all time, but it turned out it was everybody's second favorite. And you got to be drinking a lot of mead a week to buy your second favorite when you go to the store. When people bought cases, they'd buy their favorite and then two four packs of this one. But um, Valkyrie's Choice, uh, my baby. Ancient Collection is my my current project um, and a real passion project for me. But Valkyrie's Choice is, it's the closest thing ABV and flavor profile wise um, and alcohol content. Uh, sorry, ABV, uh, flavor and um, clarity to what we think the Vikings were actually drinking at their ceremonies. Um, the things that are very different about it is it comes in a can, again, no angry or dead bees in it and uh, has more bubbles. But Vikings were sadly lacking in bubble technology. Um, what's really cool about it is it's honey, water, yeast and yeast nutrient. And that's it. And when we moved right up the road, 30 minutes away, whole different water profile. And so we got new filtration in and what we started doing was stripping our water, like definitely not reverse osmosis, but like really stripping it down so that we could build it back up using a complex nutrient blend. And then you get to play around with temperature. And temperature is the biggest factor after the honey and the yeast. And so we have this cool yeast that um, it's D47, you guys have it as well, uh, Lalvin D47. I love it because it's like it's like if you had a car that was a Volvo at 40 miles an hour and a Porsche at 60 miles an hour and a Tesla at 92. Like it's just a different vehicle every every temperature shift. And once you get that rhythm and you know what it's going to be, how it's going to act, you just you can trick it out to do almost anything you want. Um, you can pretend that it's a sour. Like you can, you can push it as we do not kill our wild yeast. So we can suppress the D47 activity to make sure that it completes the fermentation. All the sugar's gone, but we can build up the wild colony of wild yeast and bacteria to give it that cool effect. Or we can put it right at a clean point, end up with a really clean mead that has a little bit in the way of esters and, and polyphenols, or we actually use it for one of our Belgian styles. We go right to 92 degrees, but there's also a fruit in there and it'll just eat it up. And so Valkyrie's Choice and Old Wayfair, which are both, um, Old Wayfair does have a raw sugar added, but it's uh, two, 2% of the fermentables, 3% 
Um, someday I wonder what would happen if we just like stopped putting it in. I don't know if I would notice, but it's basically honey water and yeast and they're to this day, my favorite things to play with. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. I'm really enjoying experimenting with just those basic ingredients. It's been super fun. So you, you spoke a bit to your to your ABV level. Um, mm-hmm. I'd like to ask also about your sweetness levels. So are mm-hmm. you, a lot of people are back sweetening meads. Are you back sweetening any or dry? We are, we are so dry. So the way canning lines um, that have a built-in level check is they weigh the cans. Liquids have uniform density, right? So they weigh them as they go through. And when we first set this thing up, it's obviously not designed for mead making. That would be a that would be a bad business model to make a $350,000 canning line that was for mead. Uh, but they do let you dial it in and it's little like ejector ports where it pulls off the ones that are out of spec. They were just they're only four cans long. And we were trying to get the commission, this equipment. It was like, oh my God, it's like eight o'clock at night. And I'm like a eight o'clock to bed kind of guy. And we're finally getting this thing running. It's 98 degrees Fahrenheit here, which is, sure, call it 98 centigrade. It's boiling. It's like literally boiling in this space, 100% humidity. And it's just shooting cans, just shooting cans, but both directions, including at a wall. And we're like, what is going on? And we figured out that the... Um, our meads are so dry that the uh, volumetric weight of water versus ethanol was coming into play. So it was rejecting them all because if a beer came through at, you know, four, uh, four we, for us were 470 uh, grams for spec. Um, most beers, if they're under 492, are underfills because the sugar is still in solution, thus the can is heavier, but we're actually below a uh, final gravity reading of one even. So we're lighter than water. Um, we do have a couple products that have residual sweetness. One of them, we use a combination of those raw sugars and um, that have maltodextrin in them. Maltodextrin being a non-fermentable sugar except by bacteria and even bacteria doesn't love it. Um, so it doesn't, uh, humans don't perceive maltodextrin as sweet, but the fun thing about honey is in that four, two to 4% of honey that isn't just sugar or water, there are a whole bunch of things. And one of them seems to be a flavor potentiator close to banalin. And what that does is it tricks the human brain into perceiving things as sweeter than they actually are, which is why if you want to sweeten up a beverage, you can use less honey than you do sugar. Even though sugar has more sucrose, um, it will just Flavor perception, it will boost it. Uh, People obviously do this with cookies and vanilla all the time. Uh, Pepsi does it. Pepsi is not much sweeter than Coke, but it is more vanilla. So it's perceived as sweeter. I think that's correct. Um, Don't sue me, Pepsi, for getting the fact wrong. Uh, They wouldn't sue me. They want to hide their their recipe anyway. But um, so what we figured out is if we have a sugar that has a higher maltodextrin content, where we do end up with that 1004 final gravity, instead of the 998, people perceive it as sweeter simply because it's thicker on the mouthfeel. Your brain is trying to make sense of that. It's also our oak-aged mead, so there's a lot going on in it. And those flavor potentiators are helping you get that more complex um, sugar profile. So we had a couple meads go out in the 1006, 1008 range. Even with stabilizing, we're such a quick turnaround that we've had two recalls and both of them were because we thought something was done and it wasn't. 
and it's um yeah popping cans not fun guys um not not fun better than uh better than bottle bombs i'll tell you that i really like dry meats and more importantly kelly my wife who owns the meadery really likes dry meats and so that is mostly what we brew we've done a couple sweeter things in the ancient line and over the couple batches uh, we only started launched that november of last year we brought the sweetness down and definitely we had you know people who were drinking something and again this is like totally normal final gravity for something in that range i mean a gewerstermana german gewerstermana would often have you know end up 10 16 we were like you know 10 12 10 14 14 alcohol and i would use it personally in my own home uh like simple syrup i make cocktails with it like i just couldn't handle it um there were people that loved that version but when we started bringing it more in line with our other flavor profiles, uh, that was definitely, um, we saw the sales go up. But as far as back sweetening, because we are a no filtration facility, even though we will stabilize our many of our meats, not all of them, uh, but we'll stabilize a lot of them with sulfite and sorbate just because we want to have the longest shelf life. It's also part of our, our policy. Our meats are not meant to be refrigerated until you want to drink them. Um, there's a... A uh, new Belgian brewery figured out that 40 to 60% of the greenhouse gas emissions associated with their beer were people refrigerating it at their own home. So they would stick it in as soon as it came from the grocery store and it would sit there for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. And that was actually where most of the greenhouse gases were coming from because home refrigerators, as much as we've improved them, are still not super efficient, uh, certainly not compared to commercial refrigeration. And all of our products are meant to sit out. I love cooler space. If you're if you're a distributor listening to me, I you people buy more out of a cooler. But that's one of the reasons we also stabilize because there is uh, with a lot of meads and ciders is also uh, SO2 um, production uptake or release and then reuptake that happens at higher temperatures. And then if you're up and down, up and down, you can crack a can and it'll smell like eggs for five minutes. So we also made some decisions around stabilizing over that. But because of where I live, hazy is king. I prefer hazy beverages um, personally. And I mean, I, I'm not against a clear wine. I think I would be weirded out if I poured out a Chardonnay and it was super hazy. But up here, and there's one more thing about flavor perception. We actually ran side by sides with clarified products that blind, literally blinded. People couldn't tell the difference between, but the hazy ones taste more like honey what does honey look like yeah it's hazy uh-huh a crystal clear mead it was great it was bright it was wine like but i am not if i was in the business of making wine a i would be out of business by now as much as i love wine i am not a i'm not a farmer and two it's not what i was trying to make and so we wanted our meads to taste like their own special beverage and by really leaning into that hazy thing i think we really got our stride oh amazing so look in, in that whole just amazing section of information that was just like an information bomb, you've branched out to two areas I wanted to go to. One is the environment and one is Pepsi. And I'm going to start with Pepsi. So now Pepsi, secret recipe, Coke, secret recipe. There's stories about the vault that they keep the original recipe for Coke. Uh, KFC, 11, 11 herbs and spices. I don't eat much of it, but it... You're not doing that, are you? What are you doing? We're open source. 
Um, it's, it doesn't take uh, a genius to figure out that Valkyrie's choice because we're required to list our ingredients. It says water, honey. We don't have to list yeast. Yeast is not considered an ingredient in the United States, which I think is funny. Um, but yeah, water, honey, yeast. Yeast nutrient is also not considered a yeast, uh, is not considered an ingredient for reasons that I can't recall. Um, basically, it's, it's, a, it's a, not a food additive because it helps with the process. So it's like, it's a process ingredient, not anyway, point is we're open source. Yeah. So our recipes, everything is free. Um, there are a couple things that we keep for privacy. <laughs> I'm not going to release anyone's medical records or absenteeism, <laughs> but we try to release as much about our company that would not violate anyone's privacy as possible. And actually today is the first time my, um, it's, it's fun to have, we have two assistant brewers now and having two assistant brewers is like the best number because they can ask each other the questions and then bring them to a senior brewer. If um, there's more learning that happens that way, it's sort of like having a study group in college, like not having to bother your professor every time, but like trying to work it out on your own. And they made all of our clone recipes for the new round because we had just gotten behind. Like we have a million irons in the fire and we had something like a dozen products that we didn't have clone recipes for. And so we have things that we can get at a commercial level that you literally cannot buy as a homebrewer. You can buy sorbet, you can buy sulfate in your local homebrew shop, but I can specify um, a bricks concentration of blueberries so that we can, you know, like I can get a specific condensed level of fruit sugars in a specific process that you have to be at a certain scale to get. You can't get it smaller than a drum, you know, 50 gallons. But they took all of these recipes and converted them back to homebrewer recipes so that, you know, like, but you guys can get blueberry juice. And if you can't get blueberry juice, you could use. And so it was just really, really cool to say, and that's the mission. And that's why, hey, if you want my meat at home and you don't have access to buy it, for yourself, man. I, I got into this industry by doing clone recipes. And I always loved when you'd go through one of those clone magazines from, you know, Brew Your Own, and it would say right there, submitted by the brewer. I thought that was the nicest thing because a lot of them were the staff trying to figure it out and piece it together and they make a really good job. But when you saw a thing that said submitted by the brewer, I still have a soft part, part of my heart for three of those that I saw. Everyone has access to the same honey. Everyone has access to the same grain these days. Yeah, I've I've always got a soft spot for that too. Um, you know, you'll you'll see like cans or bottles, and they there's there's a couple of different ways you'll see it. Sometimes they'll just they just people just give you the recipe, and that's awesome. And then other times there's enough information on that can, like if you're talking like beer, for example, they'll, they'll tell you the grains that he used, they'll tell you the IBU level, they'll tell you the ABV, and it's like, well, if you had enough sense, you could make this yourself. Um, so there's different ways that it's done, but I really prefer the straight out, here's the recipe, here's how it works. Um, yeah, so my last question before I hand back over to Tim is, apparently you're very, very passionate about the environmental impact of mead as opposed to other craft products. So that was an added bonus. So I'm a beer guy. Me too. Completely honest. Yep. Love beer. Um, I, if, if I had my, I'll tell everyone what my go-to drink is, honestly, um, if it's not my own product, because everyone's like, what are you drinking if it's not mead? And I always like pick some other, especially if it's a, 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 a 
stateside podcast, I'll pick someone else in the industry. Um, if you want to know my favorite beer, it's 14 star right up the road. Um, they make absolutely incredible stuff. And, um, if I were really into sours, um, I would have like two or three others I would pick, but I'm a brandy and soda guy. Like I want to be the last person that sounds like he's from a PG Woodhouse novel. Like I just love interwar period fiction and I love what we make. But when we were trying to decide what we were going to do, Kelly and I knew we were starting a business. Uh, we ran through a lot of things, about a dozen business models uh, from, you know, she used to manage a high end tea shop. And so we looked at opening a European or Japanese style, but I felt like I ethically couldn't open a Japanese style tea house and European style didn't have the cachet. And um, like, I literally studied cooking in India, but I still wouldn't feel comfortable opening an Indian tea house. Like those were out for a variety of reasons, but um, we went through a lot of things and we ended up on mead because both of us had brewed. I had connections. I knew who to call to just get started. You know, I knew who could get me bulk yeast. I had their phone number. Now you could Google it. Now it'd be, I mean, I could Google it, you know, a decade ago, but not the same way you can now. And I had brewed enough and she had brewed as well. And what helped us get there was there was no story about media for all the books that had it. Beer, despite the fact that you know, whatever is 38% of craft beer consumers, 30, 40 something percent now, are women. All the advertising was for men. Really offensive. And cider actually did a U-turn in the US, but it was becoming a woman's drink. And it really got pulled back in the American craft direction, which meant it was for everyone. And it was, but we we knew that we would never be loud enough to write a story. Um in these areas. I tried to make sake twice. It was an utter disaster. So I wasn't getting into the sake world and mead seemed open. Uh, one of the things we do struggle with to this day, we, a uh, lot of white supremacists uh, see that sort of Viking mead iconography. Um, we have actually a troop of five people. We do not pay them. We did not know they existed until a few months ago, but they formed themselves into some sort of super troop policing our social media for us and knocking out trolls. Um, we got you know hate because we were a woman-owned business. Um, I forgot that being a woman was a political decision. Person said, leave politics out of this, quote. And was, so it started with that social mission. Um, there's an amazing brewery over here that the last I checked, they still have the top rated beer on earth. Uh, it's called Hetty Topper. I know Hetty Topper. You know Hetty Topper. Okay. I have not you had it. A, but you are as far away from the Alchemist Brewery as a human can possibly be. Yeah. I mean, yeah, literally uh, the ISS, the International Space Station, is closer every couple days to, to Alchemist than you are. Um, and so you know them. I don't know if they identify this way, but Jen's the people person and John is the planet person. And they are absolutely incredible. They put in a $2 million wastewater recovery system that they got fined for because the state didn't have regulations that allowed someone to do their own wastewater treatment. So they got fined for the kind of dumping they were doing, which was cleaner than a house. So they were actually improving the efficiency of the wastewater system municipally. Anyway, amazing people. But the way that Kelly and I talk about them 
is Jen's the people person. She's the one that makes sure that everyone could get on salary. And I know they both care deeply about both missions, but I'm a people person. I, I care about human beings. I love the planet because humans live here. Um, but I also live in, in the Green Mountain State. And we are very proud of our natural resources. And it starts in the U.S. now, especially because Vermont has been so good at supporting it. I, I remember when um, Australia actually could even probably go dig up the article from when I was at university, um, where Australia did the big LED, CFL, it was originally CFL push. And they found that it reduced moving your major metros to CFLs and then to uh, LEDs was a 4% energy reduction for the nation. And I was like, that's, that's big. Mm. And if you don't, I mean, there was a time when an LED bulb, you could say, yeah, it'll last 20 times longer, but it's 10 times more. I don't know. I don't, I don't look at my lighting. I didn't look at my lighting in a 10 year, 20 year time horizon. But as some of these efficiency decisions have gotten more financially feasible, they really played into my my stingy nature. Uh, do you guys know self-sufficient me? He's a Aussie. He's a really cool. Look him up. He's a big, big, big YouTuber. Um, but he has his policy is, or his, his, his um, mission is you don't have to be self-sufficient in everything, but be self-sufficient in something. And he does a lot of analyses on, you know, he has all these raised beds and uh, he's from Twomba and yeah. And his, his sister still lives out there and they just, they have to truck and water, but he bought his house in part because he knew he wanted a garden and they got more rain where he is now. And it's just a little bit down from there. And so we, as we were making our move, I really think for me, I've always tried to do the right thing. We had cow power is what it's called here. Um, they actually used, you know, methane derived uh, from, from cow poop to power our building, but we were moving into a much larger building and it simply cost more. It simply cost more and we paid to do the right thing. And then we moved into this building and solar was on the table and we are actually saving money with solar. You know, we were saving money on the heat reclamation system. And I maintain two acres of wild pollinator health projects behind me, but that's partially all started because it was like, I don't want to mow it. And so then I like did a deep dive into that. And that's, I think, where it started to meet the needs of my family and my company. And then that in and of itself became my mission is helping people see that, you know, there, we only have one planet to live on. Let's, let's keep it safe for every living thing that we possibly can, except possibly mosquitoes um, and Japanese beetles. Um, oh my God, my daughter's four and she has this huge garden. I spent every day crushing Japanese beetles for her, but um <laughs> But I think it was having kids um, looking at how my daughter looked at the world was when I was like, oh, no, it's not just about saving money anymore. When we the, the one of the houses I grew up in, um, I lived on an island during the summers and houses on either side of it were destroyed in a hurricane, a hurricane larger than any that had ever hit that region. Um, I think those things start to build up. And it then what happened was we've got your people person and I have made mistakes and I have. I, that I regret, like, you know, as a business owner, as a human, we all do. But we started to get people on our staff, especially the people in their early 20s, just getting out of university, and they were planet people. And it became very easy, uh, especially in Vermont, it'd be really tough in, say, Texas, to integrate 
those two missions. But up here, the state has worked really hard. Actually, Kelly serves on the Climate Council uh, for the state of Vermont, advising the legislature on uh, the small business position for for climate decisions and climate action. So it's a long-winded answer. I apologize, mm. but it's a really no, complex great. thing. And a lot of people get into it yeah. in... Most people, most people, it's a nice hike for me. It's being honest that I started trying to save money. Yeah, sure. Yeah, at least you're honest. Um, so just rounding back, um, yes, on on your website, you make some pretty um, interesting claims yeah. about the energy use between beer and mead. Can you talk us through that really quickly? Absolutely. So that was why I did that sort of last part about this is this is collateral luck. Um, if I had been super environmental and done all of my math, I probably would have ended up on mead. Um, we have very low heating in production. Uh, so scope two. So from what comes into our walls to what goes out, there is no question. Mead is almost without a doubt the highest efficiency, commonly carbonated product to produce. Um, cider's close. Um, there's a lot of complexity when it leaves your walls. Um, a lot of honey harvesting and apple picking is still manual. But then after that, it's a lot of electricity, whereas grain is a lot of mechanized, but it's um, gas-driven, petrol-driven, almost the entire process. Where we really see our big savings, so cider's great, environmentally speaking, I, I, as I said earlier, yeah. I love it. Yeah, sure, sure, but, yeah. Um, it's those weird things like a lot of craft beer needs to be refrigerated going out, refrigerated full supply chain. They use a huge amount. Their thermal load, as much as they try to you know, save that heat and pump it into the next mash, that's an hour of boiling. And that's a huge, huge thermal load. We actually had someone at university run the numbers for us. I didn't run them myself on for our actual production. We're at about 5% the energy load of a beer that's then comes massive yeah it's i mean there's it, that one's insane cider depending on how the wine is processed um but cider the grinder and the the press puts them right about the same spot um but compared to beer it's a it's a no-brainer in-house and then because we're able to do high temperature fermentations recapture that heat we also have a much lower thermal load there and then the lack of a refrigerated supply chain is one of the biggest savings we have that's incredible um i'm i'm so impressed and it's i'm, I'm very much in your boat like we've started this journey of investigating this this metery and um we're discovering along the way that, oh my goodness, this is actually so much better for a lot of things. And we're really stoked about that and, and hearing that um, is so encouraging. And um, well, mate, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, you've been super generous and we're just so stoked that, yeah, you're taking the time out of your day to talk to us. We really appreciate it. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for supporting Greedy Bear and listening to this podcast. We've really put ourselves out there and we've been absolutely blown away with the love and support we've received. Next week on Making Ends Mead, we speak with Jeff from Superstition Meadery, one of the fastest growing and largest mead producers in the USA. That's like, I think the next thing that has to happen in the mead world is either a big company is going to make their own or someone's going to get bought and, and mead will be in every store in so many markets. And the advertising dollars that'll go with that, with television and 
print and social media are going to elevate need beyond any level that we ever could do. Make sure you check out our Elite Making Ends Meet Inner Circle Facebook group to discuss all things Mead and keep tabs on our project. Also, if you have any questions, we'd love to feature you on future episodes of the podcast. So feel free to leave us a voice recording by visiting the link in the show notes. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm Tim Engelbrecht, and you've been listening to Making Ends Meet.